With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to the Fish Bites Podcast. I am Aram Layton, and I have a very exciting show ahead of you today. Uh, we have Tim Healy, the Marlins Sun Sentinel beat writer. Tim, thanks for being on today. Anytime. So, as you know, it's been a crazy week for the Marlins in the news and on the field. The Marlins just officially sold to the Jeter Sherman group. The Marlins have also won four straight, and John Carlos Stanton is on a historic run and a torrid pace of home runs. What can you tell us about the sale, Tim, and, and what can fans expect? Uh, well, I can, I can tell you that uh, this is as far as the process has gotten uh, so far. Uh, there obviously have been a lot of fits and starts uh, in the last six, seven, eight months, even longer than that, uh, as Loria has looked to sell the team. And now with the Marlins and the group led by Bruce Sherman and Derek Jeter coming to an agreement. Uh, it's really in the hands of Major League Baseball and uh, eventually the other owners who will vote on it probably next month. 
so, it, you know, if there are no hangups in the vetting and so on of this deal and of Derek Jeter's group's financing, then I would expect a, a vote in September and the team or the new owners to officially take over the team in early October, right after the end of the regular season. I've seen a lot in the news about, I know John Heyman recently put something out saying he thinks the Marlins are beyond repair and that it's a bad purchase on the part of the Jeter and Sherman group. Do you think there's any sentiment to that? And do you think the Marlins can be turned around? Uh, I think anything can be turned around. Uh, You know, the Marlins are probably in as bad a spot as any organization in baseball in terms of financials, you know, losing money every year to uh, along those lines, financial commitments and move in, you know, in the coming years uh, to a farm system that ranks as one of the worst in baseball, if not the worst. So in, in a lot of ways, the Marlins are in a bad spot. So the turning around, you know, you know, if you have a massive, gigantic ship and that's what the Marlins are and you can't make a hairpin turn with a giant, uh, with the, <clears throat> excuse me, with a giant ship like that. So this is going to take time. Uh, you know, it's not like Jeter comes in and snaps his fingers and somehow magically the Marlins are, you know, running smoothly in all departments uh, that quickly. It's, it is going to take time. I don't think it's beyond repair. Uh, I think there is obviously a lot of room for improvement and with, with really room for improvement in pretty much every every way the organization operates, you know, from TV deal to relationship with the community to on-field product, obviously. Uh, So there are a lot of different ways uh, that they can get to work. And you mentioned financial commitments. Obviously, the Marlins' biggest financial commitment is John Carlos Stanton. He actually just cleared waivers today, which means he could be traded to any team in the MLB not saying it will happen, but now the Marlins do have the option to further explore trades beyond the deadline. Do you think it makes more sense for the Marlins to trade Stanton? And do you think there's a team that will take that contract with the torrid pace that he's on right now? Does that justify that $300 plus million contract? Uh, well, well, as far as I'm clearing waivers today, I, I don't expect a trade to happen this month or this season. Uh, it remains unlikely as it was in the lead up to the trade, the nine waiver trade deadline last month. Uh, at that point, uh, Michael Hill cited, among other things, the lack of clarity in the ownership situation uh, with as, as reason to hold on to these core pieces, uh, Stan among others. Uh, and so that even though, you know, there's the agreement with the Sherman Jeter group, it's not entirely clear yet, so I, I still don't anticipate uh, a Stan move this year. As far as interest in Stan, there will absolutely be interest in Stan because who doesn't want a guy who's leading the majors in home runs and who is having the best season of his career and should have a couple years remaining uh, as far as his uh, professional prime goes. He's uh, still 27, will turn 28 this offseason. Uh, it you know, the magnitude and size of the contract is obviously a significant variable in all of these discussions. Uh, But as far as, uh, you know, that financial commitment, it is what it is at this point. It's going to go up to his salary is going to be $25 million next year. He's got $295 million coming over the next 10 years after this one. 
there are teams that can handle that. And there are teams, there are definitely teams that can handle that uh, for the level of production that he has provided this year. Uh, whether every year will be like this one, pro- probably not. You know, there are slumps and injuries and those things will continue to happen to stand over the next decade as they will happen to everybody. Uh, but you're always going to find interest in Giancarlo Stan if he's uh, indeed available via trade, which is far more likely come off season. So if the Marlins do decide to move Stanton, do you think that's the right decision? I mean, the Marlins are on, on a little bit of a good stretch right now. They're only four games under 500 with a pitching staff that could be as bad as any, any pitching staff in the MLB. And they're competing. Do you think this is something that they should build off of? Or is it time to just replenish the farm system and, and start over? Well, there, there are two trains of thought, right? Well, at least two main trains of thought. One is somehow try to fix up this pitching staff and compete next year. And the other is to burn it to the ground completely and start over and trade all of the core pieces. I think the latter of those options is the more prudent move from a baseball perspective uh, to a fan base that has endured so much losing and has been told, particularly in recent years, that, hey, we're rebuilding, this core is uh, coming together, and then we're going to be good. Uh, it, it could be a tough sell after telling people that for so long. Uh, new owners coming in offers them uh, a bit of a clean slate, uh, that, you know, in terms of a pure public relations perspective and, you know, telling people, hey, we have to do this over and do this right and get it right. Uh, and, and so in terms of the rebuild, I think, you know, it's hard to look at this team four wins in a row aside and say, yeah, this team is going to compete because for as good as this core looks on paper and as for as good as the lineup in particular looks on paper, uh, they're pretty pedestrian offensively. Uh, the pitching staff, obviously rotation and bullpen both has been a, a bit of a patchwork effort throughout the season, particularly in relief in recent weeks. And, you know, there aren't any saviors coming through the farm system. It would be difficult to justify signing an expensive pitcher, given the where the payroll is at in future years already. And so really, it's hard to imagine uh, patching all of the holes this roster has to make it a legitimately competitive team. Because... You know, they, they've been pretty good since they stopped being bad in mid, you know, around the end of May there, but they were still bad throughout May and they're still a sub 500 team, not really in the wild card picture. So I think, uh, you know, fans need to be realistic about what the actual, what is actually happening on the field in terms of thinking about the big picture direction of the franchise, which will of course be up to Jeter and company in the coming weeks and months. Well, I think what you just touched on is important. You know, a clean slate for the new ownership and an opportunity to really win back this fan base that, as you said, has endured so much. But at the same time, business is business and the Marlins do need to improve from the ground up. So I think it's an important distinction to say, you know, we have to start over a little bit. We have to make some moves. But at the same time, you don't want to discourage the fan base that you just purchased. So do you think that the Marlins might just be better off trying to get rid of those contracts of Prado and D Gordon? Chen obviously won't you won't be able to get Chen off the books. Would that make more sense or do you just fire away Real Muto and Ozuna cuz you know you'll get uh, several top 
100 prospects? I think it needs to be all, all or nothing. You know, this idea of trading some of the bad contracts for essentially would be return of very little in terms of prospects or even major league players. You know, you can't just tell teams, oh, take our guys with uh, big contracts, uh, you know, and, and give us good players back. You know, say, say you take away, say you trade Prado. The Marlins basically haven't had him this year anyway. Say you trade D. Gordon, who has had a really solid bounce back year after a, a, a bad year last year. Uh, and, and what do you have left? You have your core pieces of the outfields of JT Real Muto, of Justin Moore. And really, you've had all of those guys this year, too, uh, minus Moore for the last couple of weeks. And if you subtract D. Gordon from that, what's what's left? Uh, You have most of a mediocre offense. You know what I mean? Uh, Theoretically, all of those players will get a little better next year. Uh, You know, it's impossible to tell right now whether this is the best year Marcelo Zuna will ever have or if it's going to be his norm for the next few years. Uh, But the reality is that the Marlins, as constituted right now, are a below average team in pretty much every way. So going off of, excuse me, what you said about uh, Martin Prado, do you think the Marlins would be better off calling calling up Brian Anderson? And do you think he could be the future at third base? Uh, That's a, that's a really interesting question. Uh, Brian Anderson's been doing well at AAA. He only got there sometime in July. So it's only been a few weeks really. Uh, ideally, you'd like to see him marinate a little more, let him dominate AAA pitching before coming up. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if he had a September call-up. But in terms of you know ha- handing over third base to Brian Anderson this season, uh, there's not really a ton of urgency or a ton of sense in that. Uh, it would start Brian Anderson's service time clock, of course, which factors into arbitration in years of team control way down the line uh, in terms of 2018, you know, come spring training, the decision of Martin Prado versus Brian Anderson will, will be an interesting one. It, Brian Anderson will be almost ready, if not definitely ready for the major leagues. And, you know, maybe, maybe Brian Anderson has a strong showing in spring and that motivates the Marlins to move Prado much like they did with Echeverria this year when Riddle showed he would uh, be a serviceable replacement at a lower cost. Uh, uh, Brian Anderson is the, prob- the probably the top position player prospect in the system right now and absolutely the one closest to the major leagues. Uh, so, you know, it, it, he, he could add some excitement to these, you know, the last month and a half here of the Marlins season. But, uh, you know, he, he's not really going to be a game changer in any way. Uh, you know, as far as this season con- is concerned. Yeah, because as I take a look at Anderson's numbers through uh, you know, through the minor leagues, as you said he just got called up to AAA this season, 113 games, he's batting 272 with 21 home runs and 76 RBIs, which is very impressive. Uh, definitely some pop that the Marlins could use in the lineup. I think a big issue with the Marlins' run production is the lack of power in the infield. Uh, I'd like to hear your take on that because I think D Gordon is you know great top of the order guy, but at the end of the day he's not gonna you know slug for you or drive in many runs. And then at third base you've got Martin Prado who also hits well with runners in scoring position, but at the end of the day he's not gonna knock the ball out of the park either. 
Uh, you have a shortstop. Now it was Echeverria. It's been Rojas. It was Riddle. All light hitting shortstops. And really your only power source is coming from first base. And I think in the modern game, a lot of a lot of power hitting shortstops are out there now as you look at Correa and Lindor. And there's a lot of power hitting second basemen. I'm curious what your take is on that. And do you think the Marlins should are too power deprived in the infield? Uh, that's an interesting idea, uh, for sure. Cause you're right. The Marlins have essentially no, no power in their infield, especially with Bohr sidelined. Um, you know, as far as D Gordon and him being your prototypical leadoff guy, you, you like him in that role and you're in, I think any team would accept him as a leadoff hitter, uh, you know, doing what he does, getting on base, stealing bases, uh, being a good base runner generally, um, the, the position where I think there's room for improvement for sure is third base. Uh, of course, a, a lost season for Prado with three trips to the DL. Derek Dietrich has been much better lately, actually, but on the season has left something to be desired, let's say. Uh, so, when, you know, if you, as you look to the future in, in this infield, sure, yeah, you would like a little bit more power at third base. That's a good idea. And Brian Anderson can uh, probably provide that. Uh, but as but you don't really look at the lineup, you know, when you're estimating what a lineup will give you over the course of a season, you don't say, oh, you know, we need some more pop specifically from the infield. You, you sort of look at it as a whole. They have three outfielders who can hit for power. They have a catcher who can hit for a decent amount of power. Uh, so that uh, that sort of balances out given how good the outfield is. It's not like the Marlins are lacking for home runs, really. You know, it's Stan, Azuna, Yelich should hit for more power if he can figure out how to lift the ball a little bit more. Real Muto's is, is a decent amount of power. And, of course, Bohr, when he's in there, was among the major league leaders in home runs for a while there. Uh, so it's not like the Marlins uh, are, are lacking power overall. But you're right, the infield uh, doesn't have a ton of it. And third base specifically could be an area of improvement on that front. Definitely, and I, I like you said, there's a ton of power coming out of the outfield, fortunately, for the Marlins, but especially should the team move Stanton or Ozuna, there will be a lot of power to be desired, I feel, in, in that lineup. If you could take a guess on the most likely player to be moved, I know it's kind of a difficult question. I know you said earlier it's all or nothing, but it seems to kind of be a domino effect who do you think would be the first to go should the Marlins decide to be uh, to, to sell? And are there any untouchables? Because I know I've heard a lot about Yelich and Rio Muto being untouchable. Is there anyone else that you might think is untouchable? And how untouchable are Yelich and Rio Muto? Uh, to, to me, the, a guy who makes sense to be the first one to go would be Ozuna. Uh, of course, in this group of core players that is always discussed, uh, it's a crapshoot, really, which which domino happens to fall first. Uh, but Ozuna makes sense in that he is having a career year. His trade value will probably never be higher than it is right now and as it will be this offseason. So uh, he, he's, to me, he's an easy piece to move. You can probably get a good return for him. He's got two more years of team control left. We'll get a, a significant raise in salary arbitration this year and is Scott Boris' client, so you're unlikely to – sign him to a long-term deal, particularly the Marlins, given where they are 
uh, financially and payroll wise for the next couple of years. Uh, and definitely. And, and, oh, sorry, go ahead. And what was the second part of your question? Oh, uh, how, yeah. How untouchable do you think Real Muto and Yelich are? Uh, to me, untouchable is, is black and white. You're untouchable or you're not. And to me, neither of those players and none of the Marlins really are untouchable if they're going to go for the rebuild. Again, you can't really <coughs> halfway do a rebuild. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it doesn't make much sense to keep Yelich and Real Muto, who are under both. both I mean, I know Yelich has his extension. Real Muto is just under team control via, you know, arbitration and whatnot. But by the time, if the Marlins decide to rebuild, by the time they're good again, you know, where where are Yelich and Real Muto going to be in their in their careers and in their contracts? Uh, to me, they could be most valuable to the team in what they would return, uh, which would be hopefully, you know each a couple of, of core pieces for the next good Marlins team uh, instead of just holding on to those guys, losing the chance to further replenish the farm system and hope that the Marlins are good while Yelich and Real Muto are still around. Definitely. Cause I, I think like you said, you can't rebuild halfway. Right. And you're just stuck in a perpetual cycle. Um, That's sort of but, what the Marlins have done for years now. Absolutely. And every year they think they're in contention. They end up trading off a few good pieces to try and get an arm like a rental like Andrew Kashner or Fernando Rodney. And you you end up just giving away pieces and not even making the playoffs. Even if you do, I don't see how it's worth it. And that's part of the reason why the farm system was drained along with, you know, poor scouting. But if the Marlins do decide to sell off all of those pieces, I you look at the Adam Eaton trade. Marcelo Zuno would have to get a better return than Adam Eaton, in my opinion. I'm curious what you think. And Adam Eaton got what uh, brought in a return of two top 100 prospects, I believe, and and another very solid mid level prospect. Do you think if the Marlins make those moves and decide to trade that core, is that enough to make their farm system one of the best in the MLB from the worst, as you said earlier? Yeah, definitely. If uh, the Adam Eaton trade is actually. <clears throat> is an interesting baseline for a potential Ozuna deal. Obviously, Ozuna is more offensively focused and even defensively so. Uh, so they're definitely different players, but you're right. The Nationals got a haul for Eaton, which uh, goes to show, uh, you know, Ozuna would bring back some good minor leaders. Uh, as far as trading all of their core pieces and turning the farm system around, yes, I think it can happen very quickly. Uh, look at the White Sox as an example. Over the last probably 13 months, starting at last year's trade deadline and through the winter when they traded Chris Sale and even into this season, uh, they had one of the worst farm systems in baseball. And now they're bursting at the seams with prospects and some of those guys are starting to get to the majors. Uh, so really, you know, in recent years, the most recent, most well-known rebuilds are probably the Cubs, who started from scratch, uh, the Astros, who endured several or at least a couple hundred lost seasons, and right now we're seeing the White Sox do it. The White Sox haven't seen, uh, you know, the major league fruits uh, uh, develop yet, but they're in a really good position moving forward, given all the prospects they've 
they've reeled in by trading their best players. Definitely. And it, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do, but like you said, it might be necessary, unfortunately for Marlins fans to hear that. Right. Well, um, to, to go back to a point that you mentioned earlier, and I forgot to address, you know, the idea of, you know, turning off the fan base or frustrating the fan base or things along those lines. Don't get me wrong. Marlins fans are great. The, the ones who exist and the ones who pay attention but the reality is that TV ratings are low and attendance numbers are low. So there isn't much of a fan base to turn off. And if and when the Marlins turn it around on the field and they start winning, all of those numbers will go up and fans who exist now and fans, you know, potential fans, uh, lack what uh, fans who aren't hardcore, they'll come around if and when it's a winning team. Absolutely. And, and, that's basically the the number one uh, way to build a fan base is just to win. You know, you look at places like San Francisco. Absolutely. That that really from the ground up. I mean, San Francisco has always been a good baseball town, but two hundred plus consecutive sellouts following those three World Series appearances in f- five years or, or so, and even in such a terrible year for the team, one of the worst in franchise history, they're still selling out every game. It's not to say the Marlins will ever get there. But winning, like you said, will definitely uh, drum up some excitement. But I- I'm hoping, for the sake of the Marlins and the Marlins fan base that exists, like you said, this sale can maybe inject a little bit of adrenaline into the fan base and gives give fans a little bit to look forward to. Uh, Absolutely. Going like another, uh, I've read one of your pieces uh, on Justin Nicolino, and I thought you did a great job of basically saying his time's running out. How many more chances can this guy get? What's your assessment of Nicolino this time around? And and do you think that he can hone in on it, on his stuff and figure out what kind of pitcher he is? Or are the Marlins going to give up too soon and he ends up like an Andrew Miller where he goes elsewhere and, and ends up figuring out his craft? And what do you think, uh, Justin Nicolino, where do you think he may go? Uh, well, the next month and a half will uh... – Tell us a lot on the Nicolino front. As I wrote in the story that you mentioned, uh, this is his last option year. So he is in a position similar to the one Jose Urania was in a year ago uh, in that come next spring training, it's time to put up or shut up. He has to make the roster or the Marlins will cut him and risk losing him on waivers, uh, you know, through that transactional uh, process. Uh Nicolino was at a pretty good game in his his first game back in the majors a couple of days ago, and we'll see what that yields. I wouldn't expect him necessarily to be an Andrew Miller type, uh, just because Andrew Miller always was you know a, a highly regarded prospect who had the pure stuff. He threw hard and all of that, and he just couldn't quite put it together for what ended up being a couple more years. With Nicolino, the stuff isn't. It isn't as nasty. He doesn't throw as hard. He sits in the low 90s. And Mattingly, Mattingly was saying last week, uh, you know, before Nicolino made the start, that that's who Nicolino is. Nicolino has to learn, has to accept that and learn how to pitch that way. Uh, Mattingly was mentioning, you know, maybe go curveball heavy, maybe go off speed heavy, uh, you know, mixing in the, the changeup a bunch. Whatever that right formula is for him uh, he has to figure it out 
And it's not really, you know, in terms of time running out, it's not a knock on Nicolino necessarily because it's not, it's just a acknowledgement of the reality that it's been three years of this, you know, solid minor league results, uh, less so in the major leagues. And if he's a legitimate major league pitcher, now's the time for him to prove it. Uh, absolutely. And the thing is, I, I, the, the Andrew Miller situation is obviously different, right. but I know, I know Marlins fans still right. kind of, it still burns a little bit. That one hurts. Because it, 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 they gave up on him a little early, and I know the the pitching coach. I can't, his name doesn't come to my mind, but for the Red Sox, is it was very well well known for developing left-handed pitchers. And I know Andrew Miller gives him a lot of credit for helping him hone in on his stuff. But I think the the important distinction with Nicolino, like you were saying, is there's a big difference between control and command. And Nicolino has good control, but he doesn't have great command. And when you're throwing low nineties and you have average stuff, you really need to be able to have good command and spot up and, and make hitters get themselves out because he's not going to strike out, you know, 10 plus guys like Chris Sale does. But hopefully for the Marlins' sake, Justin Nicolino can turn into a decent back back of the rotation starter. But like you said, it, maybe the pressure pressure will be better for him uh, with this coming year being his his last opportunity to make the team, or he maybe he'll fold, but. At that point, at least the Marlins will know to look for other options because they seem to continue to hope that Nicolino might be that guy. As we go into the final kind of segment before we wrap up, as you know, a lot of our readers are big fans of yours, Tim. And <laughs> I'm glad. We, and they, they love to give you a hard time, but they also love to ask you questions. So we, we kind of reached out on our Twitter and we, we wanted to see if anyone has – any questions for you? Most of them, not to my surprise, were not really traditional baseball <laughs> questions. But nonetheless, one of the uh, questions that stuck out to me was, how does Tim feel about the removal of the home run statue? Oh, yes. This this sort of blew up a couple of days ago and kind of annoyed me because the quote-unquote removal of the home run statue sculpture isn't it, it isn't a given. Nobody's really talking about this yet. That started as one line in a story about the Jeter Sherman group and you know that agreement with the Marlins. And it was a source close to Jeter or who had been in contact with Jeter who suggested that it might be something they do. So the idea that you know they're taking out the home run sculpture uh, in October, you know, that's, that's going to be his first move. That's not really the case. If, if he does take it out, uh, I don't know if I would really have any reaction to it. <laughs> um, it would be, uh, it would, you know, thinking about the outfield landscape at Marlins park, it would definitely, uh, alter that considerably, but I guess it depends on what they do in its place. If it's just an empty spot, beyond the fence. And that's, that's kind of lame. I think the sculpture overall uh, has grown on me a little bit. And I think it's grown on a lot of people Uh, is uniquely uh, Marlins, uh, uniquely Miami. uh, And as weird and psychedelic as it looks, uh, it's sort of a, you know, a big part of Marlins park for sure. 
what pains me about the sculpture though is that it's almost Jeffrey Loria's legacy. Sure, sure. Something that just lingers forever. And I forget what season it was. It may have been 2013 where the Marlins had one of the lowest payrolls in the MLB. And that sculpture was as ex- I think it was the fifth most expensive player in quotes on the team. So basically every other player their salary was less than the price of the sculpture, which seems like the most Jeffrey Loria thing I've ever heard in my life. Right. And th- that's a good point. If if Jeter and company want to uh, get rid of it from a pure image perspective, from you know adding on to that clean slate sort of deal, that would make a lot of sense to me for sure. I, I would uh, un- absolutely understand why uh, any, pers- any new owner would want to do that as a symbolic move more than anything. Absolutely. And, and the last question we have for you uh, is what's the best Chipotle you've ever eaten at? <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, well, I guess I'd say there, there are two Chipotles that I hold near and dear. They're my, my local Chipotles. Uh, the one, when I used to live in Boston, the one in Cleveland Circle. Uh, that's a great Chipotle. Better known to the larger world is the one that had neurovirus in December 2015, but rest assured I was not affected. Uh, and then the one I have down here now uh, st- on Sterling Road, I think technically in, in Dania. Uh, so I go to that, chap- that Chipotle probably more often than I should. So uh, shout-, shout out to both of those. <laughs> Absolutely. A little free endorsement over here. And <laughs> Last but not least, what will Stanton finish with? What will his home run total be? Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, as of right now, after he uh, hit number 43 last night, uh, he is on pace for 60. Now, that takes into account his r- recent tear, as well as you know his, his relative slower months. Uh, so as a total, I'm going to say 59. Which is which is a crazy number, really. Which is you know only only five players ever have uh, hit the sixty threshold. So uh, fifty nine obviously is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, there's just something about that milestone, though. That would kind of sting a little bit, but that's a, that's a great <laughs> number to have. If I'm sure if Stanton gets fifty nine. Some of our readers will be on you, but uh, <laughs> hopefully he'll crack sixty. And for your sake, because. I promise you they will be on you. <laughs> but anyways, Tim, thank you for joining me. Uh, it's always great having you on. I'm sure all of our readers will be and listeners will be really excited to uh, hear you and hopefully we'll have you on in the near future. Great. Anytime. Thank you very much. Have a good one, Tim. You too.